You're listening to The Real Witches of the End Times, transmissions straight from the underworld. Doom witches, blood wizards, underworld accountants, and cloud people. Welcome back to the Real Witches of the End Times podcast. I'm your host, Mana Allen. We have Mary Ellen here from Wayward Silver. I first met Mary Ellen because they were a listener or are a listener of the podcast. I've done work with them. And since then, we've just been chatting on Instagram. And I learned that they knew quite a bit about Pennsylvania Dutch magic. And I don't know anything about that. So they're here today to talk to us about that. And thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited. I'm a huge nerd about this subject, so having anyone who will listen to me about it is a great privilege. Um, And it's also exciting to hear your intro live. (laughs) I've heard it so many times. (laughs) Mary Ellen is a doom witch, by the way. Oh yeah, I'm definitely a doom witch. (laughs) 100%. But yeah, so I'm Mary Ellen. Mary Ellen Rose is kind of my internet alias, but... I am a silversmith, and through silversmithing, I have a lot of time to listen to things such as podcasts. Um, and with that, my knowledge of esotericism and folk magic and everything has just grown through the podcasting community, really. So I'm a huge nerd about all of that stuff. And, you know, we'll talk about my favorite episodes of any magical podcast for a <laughs> while. But my specialty comes is coming in um, to this Pennsylvania Dutch folk magic uh, through my own ancestry in Pennsylvania and the Pennsylvania German heritage. And Mary Ellen was telling me before we recorded too that the Dutch part of Pennsylvania Dutch is actually an inaccurate label. Yeah, um, so that's something that a lot of Pennsylvania Dutch stuff just kind of got, in modern day we would call it whitewashed, which doesn't really make sense because we are also generally white, but culturally just kind of got erased and smushed. So the Pennsylvania Dutch um, language is a little bit different from German. It's almost if the Germans can't really understand, they can understand it, but they can't really speak it. And you basically just sound like kind of a drunk German if you're talking. (laughs) Pennsylvania Deutsch is the language. Um, And because it's called Deutsch, the English who were in Pennsylvania and New York when when these people came over in the 16 and 1700s, they just said, well, that sounds like Dutch. And so they started to call them the Pennsylvania Dutch. I guess they just were okay with it. They said, you know, great, call us the Dutch. We're fine with it. We're technically German or Swiss. Some French Huguenots in there, some people from um, like Northern Germany, which was technically Rhineland at the time, the area of the Rhine. Yeah, all, all kind of, amalgamated in this term PA Dutch, which is the general inclusive term. Pennsylvania German kind of excludes those people from from other regions. Okay, so if we go with the general knowledge of what folk magic would be, Pennsylvania Dutch magic seems to be a synthesis of what people have brought over to then the resources that they would have where they settled, right? Right. So a lot of this, I mean, with, with folk tradition, um, it was a lot of things being passed through word of mouth, a lot of things generation to generation. The 
thing that most people think of if they know a little bit about Pennsylvania Dutch folk magic is the word powwowing, which we can get into that word and more about that. But that is the, the faith healing practice that is most commonly thought of with Pennsylvania Dutch magic. And with that, there were a lot of, of remedies and you know herbal spell work, stuff like that, that, that included things from, from Germany and from those regions. And then it, it you know, changed shape as it met the, the English and the American landscape. But we can talk about the word powwow, because I feel like it's important to bring that up, especially today when we want to be really careful about appropriation. And there is a lot of things to touch on with appropriation and colonialism in the Pennsylvania Dutch history. Yeah. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? I can. So the word powwow, similarly to the naming of the Pennsylvania Dutch, these people started to show up. The British had already colonized much of the region and were living among the Lenny Lenape tribe, the Susquehannock tribe, the Delaware. Um, and they were sort of, uh, it's a long history and a complicated one, but the Iroquois were also around in the sort of warring context with those other tribes. But with that, it was William Penn's Pennsylvania. So this was a time when religious freedom was the name of the game. And the Pennsylvania Dutch left Germany and that area as, you know, the Reformation had happened. And then you had the Thirty Years' War. And they were no longer feeling that they had religious freedom or the ability to practice their, you know, their beliefs publicly. So that's why people started to, to come to the United States from that region was for the promise of, of Pennsylvania and William Penn's um, settlement itself, where they had heard, you can do whatever you want, and it's encouraged. So that spiritual practice, when they came, no one else was doing anything like this faith healing in the new world. And so the settlers who were already there from England said, oh, well, what you're doing looks like what we know the indigenous people do, and they call it powwowing. So we're just going to say what you do is called powwowing. And that stuck in the same way that the PA Dutch name did. And so the German word, the Pennsylvania Dutch word is, um, I cannot do the German CH sound. <laughs> so that's not <laughs> going to happen. But it's um, like brockeray or brockerai. Um, a lot of powwow doctors, powwow practitioners will just use the word trying. They will try for you. And that's the word that I prefer to use as well as just calling it PA Dutch folk magic so that there's no worries about appropriation or misusing words that belong to another set of people. Although there's some history with the powwow word itself not really being indigenous, but that's a whole other mm -hmm. conversation. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like if you use the word trying, it avoids a lot of miscommunication nowadays. Yeah, and it's also a really symbolic and beautiful word because there's no promises in it. It's just, I'll give it a try. And I think in a lot of kind of the practices that they did, that was really all they could do at the time. Yeah, it sounds like a very honest way to, to call what you do or a way to refer to what you do. It really is. And generally those practitioners were... Um, well, we'll get into the, the religious aspect of all of it, but they, if it didn't work, um, rather than taking any personal accountability, they would usually say, well, you don't believe enough and <laughs> kind of pass it off. So that's not quite so honest, but who knows? Maybe that's how it worked. 
So you've mentioned that this has an ancestral piece for you. Is this something that you grew up with and learned about as you were growing up? Or is this something that you stepped more into as you got older? Yeah, so I think one of the reasons that I'm so kind of excited about it presently is I grew up knowing that I was Pennsylvania Dutch and just thought that I was uh, super Christian with a lot of superstitions. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's um, the thing with so much people are like, oh, I'm not religious, but my family did X, Y, Z all the time. It's like, yeah, oh, it's all woven in there. Yeah. So we didn't do a ton. So my grandpa on my dad's side still spoke Pennsylvania Deutsch. Um, he would do, he would kind of like tease the kids using the language. Um, and he would every Thanksgiving in front of the whole family kind of stand up and say this huge long prayer in in the language and everyone would just kind of laugh and not know what he said but as a kid it was just okay there's grandpa doing something weird and we didn't practice I didn't know that I knew certain words I didn't I had no idea that I was connected to any kind of magical history whatsoever and so I actually only learned about it maybe five years ago and have just gone so deep into it, which is why I'm, I'm like, I just want to tell people because I feel as though if I had known this when I was younger, the trajectory of my life would have been so different. More recently, I was just um, with my sister who is, she's 35. And I was telling her about some of the, the stuff that I've been learning. And she, her jaw was like on the floor. Like she had no no idea that we were anything other than a very religious people. So it's been, it's been really wild to get into and really exciting to share with people who are just so detached from, from their ancestry and for other people in general. I think um, this was the really the earliest American, uh, if you exclude indigenous, you know, what has always been here magic, but the earliest, you know, new world American magic that, that we know of. So I think it's a really important history to preserve and at least talk about. <laughs> and I think even if people don't have Pennsylvania Dutch ancestry, that it's, at least I love hearing people's personal stories with getting to know that part of themselves again. And I say again, as in like an epigenetic perspective, you know, uh, an energetic perspective, ancestrally and everything. I think it's inspiring to hear people who are able to reconnect because I think a lot of us will sometimes struggle with this and maybe you did at some point or do that like you're not allowed to because you didn't organically have it crop up in your life right yes absolutely and there's some people who are um, modern powwow practitioners who have have no ties to to the heritage like the gen you know genetics but they're drawn to it because it similar to you know, folk Catholicism, it, it incorporates their existing beliefs and allows them to practice in a more magical way, mm -hmm. yes. which is just awesome. And it is, it, it's not a closed practice whatsoever. Some folks will say that you have to believe in God. Um, some folks will say just, just the doctor has to believe in God. The, the person being healed doesn't. Um, and some people will say that's all baloney and it's pagan to begin with. Um, there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of opinions. <laughs> <laughs> there's always going to be opinions, but I, I think, you know, any, any tradition that starts with the word folk means for the people priority, you know, yes. like yes. what, what can you do? Like, what are you able to bring to the table? And, uh, 
Also, just as a side note, I was talking to one of my friends earlier, and we think a really good example of a clothes practice is just being a werewolf. (laughs) Because if you can do the thing, then clearly you're initiated, no matter what way it came to be. There needs to be less argument about the method as opposed to, well, can you do the thing? (laughs) Yeah, there's really no gray area. Unless, I guess, (laughs) if you maybe share a cup with with a werewolf, are you... You know, you swap a, a little bit of spit there. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe, because then again, it would still contingent on can you transform into a werewolf or not? That's true. Yeah. Anyway, that is totally distracted from the great point you were making. I was just <laughs> thinking of that. <laughs> As a I love com- it. <laughs> oh, man. This time of year, I always like start tweeting like I have werewolf sightings in my town. So sorry to everyone in advance. It began <laughs> last night. So... I'm a werewolf in Skyrim, so keep it. Oh out. yeah, I'll come say hey. <laughs> I love this. I love this. I keep waiting for them to make a comeback because we're kind of going through, like you know, we went through the '90s, now we're in the 2000s. The 2010s are going to be making a comeback. People are going to be all into werewolves again. Yeah, I'm ready. Um, and this time, I'll be folklorically prepared. <laughs> so I would love to come back to like this this rediscovery that you had for yourself. So how, what did that look like? Like how did it? What were the first pieces that began to pique your interest as you became more interested? Uh, so it's been a journey as, I mean, you, <laughs> the other workings that you and I have, have discussed together, it's always a journey with me, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing that really pushed me in this direction was uh, I got loosely interested in magic or kind of had a resurgence of interest in magic and as one does, checked every book I could find at the local library out. And I don't want to, everyone's always like, oh, I was into this since I was eight years old. I was probably 24 at this point. Um, So, you know, better late than never. But I uh, got this book on the witch hunts in Pennsylvania. So you, you know, you hear about that in Salem, obviously, in Massachusetts and New England. That's the word. Um, the New England states, and you hear about all of that, but I didn't really know that this was happening in Pennsylvania. And there were instances of Pennsylvania Dutch women and faith healers being, they weren't, they didn't end up being hung or anything like that, but they were tried and accused of witchcraft during the witch hunts. And my background was that there's no possible way that that could make any sense. And so I just started to dig and I quickly found that it was absolutely reasonable for them to be saying that this looks like a witch because it really does look a lot like witchcraft. (laughs) So it makes sense that neighbors were were skeptical. And there was a lot of um, regional disputes, as there always are through antiquity, but between Catholics and Protestants. And um, some of that was happening at the time. So there was there's actually a lot of lost records from, from that time because things were being burnt to keep them safe and thus continuing the folk tradition as opposed to the written one. Interestingly, while I'm on the subject of the, the Catholic versus Protestant thing, the book that was written, um, the powwow book, it's basically the Bible of powwow. It is called The Long Lost Friend and it was written in the 1820s, I think 1820 actually exactly, by this guy, George, John George Homan. And he was a Catholic, which is mind-boggling because you look at these people who were primarily Lutheran or 
um, you know, staunch Protestants coming out of a time when that, you know, that's why they left. And, you know, 100 or 200 years later, the person who writes the ultimate grimoire of this magical practice is a Catholic, and it ends up being completely adopted by the Protestants in the region. So it's just that fascinating kind of tossing about of things. But to get back to your question, sorry, I'm all over the place. That's okay. I love hearing this. So keep going. Um, I'm so, like, I just have so much information and no one ever wants to listen to me talk about it. So I'm like, here, take all of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I, I started to go down that rabbit hole and dabbled a little bit. And in my personal practice and my personal life, I went through a few years later, um, I lost my dad who was the Pennsylvania Dutch connection for me. And with that, there was a lot of fallout with that side of the family and a lot of disconnect. Um, my grandparents, who were the ones who really held on to the genealogical stuff. Um, my, my grandpa is, he's, he's still alive, but he has dementia and is pretty much not anything close to where he was. My grandma had passed away years ago. And then losing my dad just really like severed that side for me. And so, uh, and well, 2020 also helped with the living relations on that side of the family. Um, so I found myself really kind of isolated from that history and as a way to stay connected, but keep up my personal boundaries, I started to connect with, with the ancestor work and finding parts of myself in that, that lineage has been just like incredibly eye-opening and exciting for me. Yeah, I've had that with my family too. There's a part of my family that I was pretty disconnected from due to family drama, as it were. Mm -hmm. And when I started doing more ancestral work with that specific branch, it was like somehow everyone was affected by it. Yeah, it's very, it's healing in a way. I have one uncle who I still talk to and I'll just like, you know, saddle up to him and try to get him to tell me stories but it's tricky nobody wants to talk about it and they're all like why is this girl in all black trying to talk to me about <laughs> <laughs> they don't know what to do with me that's okay why is it that people don't really want to talk about it nowadays well there's a historical answer and probably a personal answer as well mm -hmm. yeah. i will give you the historical answer which brings in everyone's favorite modern subject, which is murder. Uh, <laughs> we were talking about murder before we came on the show, by the way, everybody. It's true. <laughs> yep. What else are we going to talk about? So the powwow practice was super common in this area for hundreds of years. And up until the 1920s, you could, in these towns in central Pennsylvania, walk down the main street, find a shop, with the word powwow in the window and go in and get a healing. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and people were still, you know, a lot of, as with all folk, well, I don't want to say all, but much folk magic. There's, you know, herbal remedies, there's superstitions, there's divination, there, there's everything happening all at once. And those things were happening relatively out in the open, but it was kept close to home. It didn't spread out a, a, a ton. There's there's some folks in the Ozark region who moved from, from that area who took some folk practices with them. There's some in the Carolinas. Um, 
as well as in New York. But other than that, it stayed, it's stayed where it, where it started. And in the twenties, there was this murder that got a lot of attention where a powwow healer was accused of putting a hex on a, on a guy who's, I think he's 18, young. And they ended up seeking revenge. It's a whole story, which I'm happy to tell if you're interested. But after that, you really heard the, the media promoting, you know, the dumb Dutch became a phrase. These dumb Dutch believe in witchcraft. And it really put the practice under the spotlight and under a lot of scrutiny. And so after that, people stopped talking about it. People hid their books. The book, uh, The Long Lost Friend, which I had spoken about earlier, was found in the home of the man who was murdered and it just turned the lights out on powwow publicly for for quite a time and now there's there's people you know i'm in my 30s and there's some folks in in my age group who have taken an interest and are kind of trying to bring it back and modernize it and confront some of the more complicated parts of the history and just put the light back on it a little bit while we're in a period where it's safe to do so. That's so interesting. Yeah, you hear that so much with uh, with different folk traditions and then now we're at a point where there seems to be a slight amount of reprieve for practice or in talking about it. Yeah, and it's funny. Um, I, I attended the Salem Witch Fest this past month, I guess. Mm-hmm. In a couple of, of the classes, people were talking about how common it is to hear about Pennsylvania Dutch stuff when you're when you're looking into folk magic and I just had to laugh because you know as the person who grew up as a Pennsylvania Dutch person in a Pennsylvania Dutch region I still had no clue (laughs) (laughs) that's how underground I think a lot of folk magic in in America got to be for a long time you really have to dig to to find it Mm -hmm. so what are some of the key pieces that would define Pennsylvania Dutch magic um, healing is first and foremost. Uh, the the book Long Lost Friend is almost entirely healing for people and animals. These were farm people. Everybody had a farm. Everybody worked at the farm. That's still mostly true. We're all just poor farmers. And healing animals was an enormous part of it. And sympathetic magic. So it's a lot like Reiki in modern day. It's a lot of hands over the body, kind of pulling things out, taking it on and then wringing it off of you. There's some spells and prayers. So the spells are everything said in three, which is, uh, you know, the, the Holy Trinity. So you invoke the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with each incantation. Um, some of them are prayers. And it's this strange amalgamation of religion and I mean it's Catholic and it's Christian and it's just plain magic (laughs) so beyond healing there's some divination there's instructions in the books for how to create a divining rod Hmm. the the proper way to to consecrate your wand and where to you know what kind of wood to use or where to where to find it or when I think you actually find that one on like the 10th day of Christmas or something (laughs) Um, which I would have to track I would have to look at when that actually is. 
There's interestingly astrology and zodiac correspondences, which a lot of that is if you've ever picked up the old farmer's almanac or a different almanac, it's going to be really similar to that and that they came out of the same region. So mm. there was a lot of kind of sharing of, of that kind of thing. So, you know, that's planting seeds at the new moon and harvesting at the full moon and things like that. And I would say those are, those are the major ones, but you know, it was all over the place with a lot of herbalism. They didn't use a lot of herbs in cooking, but they did use a lot of herbs in remedies and um, some spell work. Uh, they did some written spells, things like, are you familiar with like this, the Seder square? I know that that's popular from, I think, Agrippa. It's a magical square that's like a palindrome. Yeah. And in this case, uh, the Pennsylvania Dutch were really good at fire and warts. So this <laughs> Seder square was great for putting out fires, as well as uh, some other things. You would carry it with you. Yeah, wart removal is huge. <laughs> There's like probably 25 different methods for removing warts magically or herbally. Um, these written pieces of papers with, with things like the abracadabra written out or um, different arrangements of Latin letters and words with a blessing underneath it or a prayer written down that you would put under your bed or under your pillow to protect you or heal you, things like that. Those were called Himmel's briefs. You hmm. would carry them with you. People know about them mostly from uh, World War II and Vietnam. I guess a lot of soldiers still carried those with them. I think German-Americans would you know, tuck that into their pocket and take it to war to protect them often probably given to them by their mothers. I'm wondering now, because again, I don't know anything about Pennsylvania Dutch magic other than what you've just told me. Is there a religious piece to it as in like some folk traditions use Bible verses and things like that? Is that part of this at all? Yes. So it gets pretty complicated. <laughs> and I think I had said before, the roots of this are for all intents and purposes lost it's my secret and now not so secret mission to find them, but I don't know if that's possible. There, like I said, everybody has an opinion on where this came from. And there are people like, for instance, Silver Raven Wolf, who you might've read as a teenager. Um, she wrote To Ride a Silver Broomstick and some of those other young witch books. Mm -hmm. But she is Pennsylvania Dutch and she wrote this book on American folk magic with a lot of claims in it that I would love to believe. It's one of the ones I found early on in my research. And I got so excited because she really paints a beautiful picture of, you know, old world witchcraft connections to this and the origins. But there's just not the evidence to back it up that I have found mm -hmm. and that other people who are looking for it have found. The roots of the the thing to note about the book specifically is that it was only assembled in 1820 so prior to 1820 this had been 200 years in in the new world without having ever been written down so it would be scraps of paper coming over on the ships from germany and it would be passed from family to member to family member oftentimes um, female to male and male to female which points to other craft practices. 
this man in, in 1820 who wrote it was, was Catholic. And we don't know what he included or excluded from yeah. the book and why. He definitely needed money when he wrote the book that is known. Uh, he, you know, he said that the book itself was, was magical. And if you carried it with you, you would be safe, essentially, from harm if you had it on your person. Uh, like the, the book itself was a spell. And to this day, people kind of look to this as the, the ultimate guide to Pennsylvania Dutch magic. But that erases hundreds of years of history into, I mean, his book is very short. It's, it's not a big book. And you just, you know that, that there are people doing all kinds of things and we just don't, don't know about it. So there's people who can trace it back to uh, North Germany having um, more Norse influence. So, you know, there are some people who say the original gods being invoked were, were Loki and Freya and Thor from, from this Nordic sect. But then that doesn't make a lot of sense for the folks who came from Southern Germany. And how it all just accumulated into this one small book is so frustrating. <laughs> like, I just want to know. And, and we don't know, and we m might never. I think that there will be a lot of clues in German folk magic for me personally, but it's, it's just been really, really hard to trace beyond that. So it gets a very Christian spin, at least in the 1800s. Prior to that, I don't know. How do you feel about the long rest friend personally? Like, how do you, <laughs> I'm curious, you know, um, you've talked about it a lot, it being a staple piece for practitioners, 1820 and beyond, but how do you feel about that? Uncomfortable <laughs> is the short answer. I mean, I, I mean, I think for anyone, anyone who is a Christian who looks at this book says, this isn't very Christian. And that doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't mean that it's wrong. I just don't know if it's entirely right. That might be my personal beef with the Christian pantheon, but I guess it's not a pantheon. <laughs> <laughs> a pantheon of one. The big man and his smaller parts. It doesn't feel entirely true to me. This practice feels older and deeper and less narrow than mm -hmm. the long lost friend claims. It sounds like it's a different era of magic. It really is. Just like today's practitioners are are changing the the practice to suit modern needs. There's also theories. I think this is something that that Silver Ravenwolf brought up about when the Pennsylvania Germans and those folks came, they were faced with Catholicism in the New World pretty quickly and having kind of gotten away from that, they might have Christianized, which is what every tradition says, you know, we Christianize our things so that we could be safe and live peacefully. And we burned all our papers, so you'll never know, which is just the endless frustration with digging into folk tradition, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I love the book. Like I love to look at it. It's very Have you ever have you ever looked at it yourself? 
the long lost friend no you informed me it exists today so (laughs) (laughs) i wrote it down (laughs) can i read you a spell sure yeah please do do you want an animal spell or a human spell can we do both yes Mm, let me see i'll just do a random thing this is where werewolf comes in again (laughs) (laughs) oh gosh there's so much i haven't said yet do you have a spell that can help my stomach transform to digest raw meat Possibly. Wrong okay. me. Oh, right, for the werewolf thing. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to pick a bit and then harass everyone with it. I was just like, mana, I don't know if that's a good idea. No, I don't. <laughs> but if it's possible, it's I might do it. But, you know, I haven't reached that point in my life yet where I stop doing shit like that. So <laughs> I like it. It can stay as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> See, there's, it's really confusing because there's remedies and then there's spells. So I'm trying to not read you a remedy, which is going to be like a... Well, can we come back to the difference thing? in a moment? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll write that down. So we're going to cure the pole evil in horses in two or three applications. The what? I don't know what pole evil is. Well, it's... let me Google it. Pole evil in horses? Yeah, so it's P-O-L-L hyphen evil. Pole evil in horses. A horse's pole is the area at the top of their head. Oh, and I guess they get a big swelling or injury on the back of their neck. Oh, okay. Very aggressive name. Yeah, really. Is that still what it's called? It's uh, on, according to equimed.com <laughs> and Wikipedia and <laughs> thehorse.com. Things you didn't think you would be Googling this evening. Comicsanscancer.com. That's a place. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right. Ready? Mm-hmm. Break off three twigs from a cherry tree. One towards morning, one towards evening, and one towards night. Oh, midnight. There's a punctuation error there. One towards midnight. <laughs> Cut three small pieces off the hind part of your shirt and wrap each of those twigs in one of those pieces. Then clean the pole evil with the twigs and leave them under the eaves. The ends of the twigs, which have been in the wound must be turned toward the north, after which you must do your business on them. That is to say, you must dirty them. Then cover it, leave the rags around the twigs. After all this, the wound must be again stirred with the three twigs in one or two days and the twigs placed as before. Got all that? (laughs) I like how specific yet vague that is at the Uh same time. Like clean with the the twigs. So stick the twigs into an open wound. Is that what it's saying? Yeah. And I think you have to essentially like stir them three times. It's probably like everything has to be done in threes. Pretty gnarly. Have you ever tried to cure pole evil before? Does it work? I have not. I actually, um, (laughs) confessions of a (laughs) PA Dutch nerd. So my sister has a farm and I was house sitting and one of her sheep had a prolapse that was definitely not good. And I had nothing I could do for, for her. She just had to suffer until they got back and could take her to the vet. So I tried, I attempted to, to use one of these for the sheep. And I don't know if it worked or not because they ended up just taking her to the market maybe maybe the spell was to stop suffering maybe maybe one way or the other 
How user-friendly is the Long Lost Friend? It sounds like you're able to look stuff up in there. There is not... I mean, there at the end is the, the index, but it's not organized in any way. Nice. Um, you have curing Sweeney and horses next to how to make molasses. Um, well, you would do both in the same day. <laughs> so, I don't know what this means, preventing the worst kind of aper from blotting. Uh, I have Google. no idea. Hold on. Aper, A-P-E-R, from blotting. Aper. Like, Google is just telling me about blotting paper. Yeah, I don't... A lot of these are, are old, you know, plurzy and... Hmm. <laughs> things that words that no one uses anymore so yeah it's not terribly user-friendly there's they're just one after the other they're actually there are better editions of this there's a more recent one that has the original german and a very in-depth bibliography which is helpful for the notes that they've added the copy that i have is pretty straightforward so if anyone out there is going to purchase one of these get the edition that is blue Okay. <laughs> I can't remember. I can tell you later and you can put it in the notes if you would like to for yeah. which copy it actually is. I cannot remember the translator's name. Um, let me see if there's another one. Okay, so here's one. Um, a way to, this is actually another way to spellbind thieves. So there is some binding for humans okay. and animals. And allegedly, I have yet to find the evidence of this, but I read that there are also spells for binding spirits, which I am very curious about. What if uh, the spirits but, are thieves? Well, maybe you combine them. Yeah. Say it six times. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this one gets religious. Here we go. <clears throat> Ye thieves, I conjure you to be obedient like Jesus Christ, who obeyed his heavenly father unto the cross and to stand without moving out of my sight in the name of the Trinity. I command you by power of God and the incarnation of Jesus Christ not to move out of my sight like Jesus Christ was standing on Jordan's stormy banks to be baptized by John. And furthermore, I conjure you, horse and rider, to stand still and not to move out of my sight like Jesus Christ did stand when he was about to be nailed on the cross to release the fathers of the church from the bonds of hell. Ye thieves, I bind you with the same bonds with which our Lord Jesus Christ has bound hell, and thus ye shall be bound. And the same words that bind you shall also release you. So with that, you have a way to, to release them as well, which is nice. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's really all over the place. You know, there's some that are very religious and some that are just pretty straightforward. You can basically, there's, there's something that I don't think is actually in this book, but there's stories of dogs with rabies or, you know, dogs coming up to, to practitioners and they as though they were going to attack and the practitioner would just put out their hand and, and say something very quickly and something like be still dog or something very basic. And the dog would just be transformed and get a pat on the head and be on its way. So there's a lot of vocalization in this tradition. Yeah, there is. There's, I would say that's, that's the primary as well as um, there's a lot of in animals and humans, this kind of holding the hand over the, the body or, or, you know, running your hand along the length of an animal's back while you're saying things similar to, to Reiki. And that's, there are different traditions um, depending on, on where folks came from in Germany or in the Rhine, but, and then also where, where they learned powwow from as everybody sort of brings in their own 
their own stories, their own folklore. So there's there's variations everywhere, which is why using the long lost friend as the the sole book is an oversight. Mm-hmm. You're just missing. You're missing like so much more. Can you go back to go back for a moment, just and touch on the difference between a remedy and a spell? So. This might be my own differentiation. It's difficult too because the book was originally written in Deutsch. And so the translation, you kind of have to depend on a good good translator. Mm-hmm. But as a general rule, I would say a remedy is something like he gives actual recipes in here for, for certain things. So a very good remedy to cure sores. Boil the bulbs of the white lily in cream and put it on the soar in the form of a plaster. So Southern wart has the same effect. So remedy would be something with just no incantation, no no ritual involved, just boil some bulbs, put it in a cream, put it on the soar. Whereas I would say a spell has some kind of written or spoken gesture beyond just assembling things. Are there times where you would use a remedy and then employ that remedy within spell work? I would say yes. I think a lot of times they kind of would do everything that they could kind of throw the book at it. Mm-hmm. Especially many of these things are, are, there's a big correlation between chiropractic as well. So nobody just goes to the chiropractor once, you know, you go and you get adjusted a little bit and then we see where we are and then try something else. So there's a lot of that kind of push and pull, um, which importantly, I think it, to note there is not to be money exchanged with powwow so in the tradition it would be primarily friends and neighbors the community who you would treat and you would never ask for payment um, sometimes people would try to sort of sneak money and in more modern times as you know money became more and more i don't know i don't want to say common because it's always been common but People don't feel right taking things for free. It became almost expected that someone would slip you money afterwards. So almost just kind of tuck it into your Bible or, you know, stick it on the porch on the way out, something like that. It would be expected, but you can't ask for it. So there's that, you know, similar to other other practices where there's not to be money exchanged. It's interesting that they're written in the book like that because... I often wonder, does it mean Crowley's done this? And I'm not a Crowley expert at all, mm-hmm. by the way. Uh, I know, again, it's not my wheelhouse, but you'll read a lot of books that have a lot of really deep information in them. And then sometimes there's stuff in there that's like a purposeful decoy that people, if they're really into it, can spot or is in there to distract from like maybe someone who's more of a looky-loo or looking for something specific. Do you, have you ever had any inkling of anything like that possibly being in The Long Lost Friend? I have not, simply because the long list of superstitions of the Pennsylvania Dutch people and their primary... I mean, everybody was a farmer. So, so much of this stuff is, is relevant just as like an almanac kind of thing where you just needed help. And having, having it all in one place, I think, was really useful. Yeah, that would make sense. I like how, while it may be not comprehensive, it sounds like it's more practical, maybe is the word. Yeah, and it was really, I mean, before before the Hex murder, 
it was, everybody had it. It was, it would be kept next to the Bible on the bookshelf, even if you weren't practicing powwow, which is something I think in today's conversations about it gets a little bit lost. It almost sounds like you were either a powwow doctor or you were nothing. And the people who I'm really more interested in is the people who weren't powwowing, the people who just believed in these practices and the way that they incorporated it into their home life is way more fascinating to me than the faith healing part of it. How would one become a powwow doctor? Like, how does that differentiation, how was that made or how is that made? I think the big thing there is the, the healing of other people versus paying attention to the other bits of things. Um, so we also haven't even talked about hex signs. So hex signs um, separate or together with powwow. This is actually a pretty good example. Hex signs are Can you similar. spell that? Yeah, it's just H-E-X, hex signs. Okay. And they, you'll find them on barns primarily, sometimes on front doors. They are signs of often protection or um, good luck, blessings for marriage, things like that. And these would be things that artists, painters would would draw, like sigils. It's, it's Pennsylvania sigil magic where you create this intentional thing and it's, it's um, a round sign with a symmetrical, usually symmetrical pattern. And there's all kinds of variations. There's the old traditional, which is mostly stars and, and rosettes during a, a revival in, I want to say, I'm going to get the date wrong. I want to say it was the 70s, but modernity. The There's a Zook, Zook the hex painter, <laughs> kind of changed the, modernized the hex sign. So now you'll find um, tulips and things based on, on the Frochter, which Frochter is German folk art that was on things like baptism certificates and death certificates. It was these really amazing folk art illustrations. There's mermaids and strange fish, <laughs> flowers of all kinds. I just looked this up and they're quite colorful too. Yeah. Oh yeah. And everything has meaning. So from the shape of the border to the colors used to the pattern, everything has a purpose. There's nothing frivolous there. And that's if you've seen my, um, uh, just like my little profile thing on Instagram, that's like my personal hex sign. And you can kind of, in today's world, they didn't do this traditionally, but in today's world, you can sort of make them for anything. Can you clarify for me, were there pre-established signs that you would use for different purposes or would you use the pre-existing symbols to create your own? So traditionally, there were pre-existing symbols. There's theories that the initial one was based on the sun, which would go back to the Celtic traditions of northern Germany. I could see that with these designs. Yeah, if you're listening, just Google hex signs, literally H-E-X-S-I-G-N-S, and click images, and there's just hundreds of them. Yeah, and so the uh, traditional original one was, I, I want to say it was, like the five-pointed star or the six-pointed rosette, like those very simple, just symmetrical things that, that kind of do resemble the rays of the sun. And there, there's some mythology behind that because it's the sun after all. So the greeting of the day, the blessing of the fields, the, you know, time to get up and go for the farmers. 
a lot of that is is included in there and it just kind of is this this blessing and reminder of life but again we don't we just don't know <laughs> and it's interesting because the the fractor which if you want to google that that's f r a k t u r and that is more germanic history that came over uh-huh. and now those those illustrations are being used in modern hex signs and they are you know inherently german but also pennsylvania dutch at this point it's all the same google has given me a 50-50 mixture of the lettering you're talking about and people's x-rays of fractured bones so you <laughs> <laughs> don't know what you're talking like, about did you mean fracture i did not no. um but it still gave me both so that's nice. really funny uh, but yeah there's flowers and there's all kinds of characters and they're I mean, fascinating. And that gets into the folklore as well, which is just fun. Well, you we talked a little bit before we recorded and we were just talking about like the German piece of things. And I my I first thought of actually just like German folklore and how like books would be written kind of in this font. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you, you can see any of the illustrations there, but they're so fantastic. I've seen some children books children's books in this style of the Frochter font in the middle and then the margin illustration yeah like this is that typical yes yeah so that's what you'll see but they would put that on like i said like baptism birth certificates death certificates um everything had that flair and it's so beautiful is this all hand done or did this get picked up with the printing movement where you could print these designs like this because there's a lot of symmetrical things it was, I mean, initially all done by hand. Mm-hmm. I would assume that it yeah. has been changed, but I, yeah, I don't know the history of that, actually. When I was looking at the images of the hex signs, I grew up pretty rural, and thus my, many of my childhood memories involved the state fair and mm-hmm. <laughs> um, seeing so many different arts and things. My grandma did rug hooking, but oh, I would yeah. always end up in like the textiles exhibits because she'd enter things in the fair there. But these remind me of quilts that I've seen. Yes, and quilting is a huge part of the culture. Um, I feel like I haven't actually noticed noted this yet, but the Pennsylvania Dutch, the Amish, and the Mennonites are all from the same region and all oh. came over to the same region at the same time. So a lot of times they get lumped together and they have a lot of shared... They share the language. There's different dialects between each sect, um, but it's... Uh, the the local colloquial term for them it's the plain Dutch and the fancy Dutch, so um, which the is plain which? Dutch plain Dutch would be the Amish and the Mennonite, which refers specifically, I believe, to their clothing because they wear a lot of you know brown or black, hmm. um, and then the fancy Dutch you know wore whatever anyone else was wearing, and so they're fancy. I could be wrong on that, but that's the way I've always thought about it. But with that. The quilting is, I mean, when you think about the Amish, you think about quilts and furniture and things like that. But the Pennsylvania Dutch also had amazing furniture that was covered in that, that Frochter um, artwork. And it's all, all kind of smushed together, even though the Amish don't like the Pennsylvania Dutch. They see it as witchcraft. And <laughs> the word hex actually means witch in, <laughs> I probably should have started with that being that this is a podcast with the name witch in the title but i inferred but that's probably good to <laughs> yeah. good to say yeah so the word the word hex which is used in the hex signs is um it actually hex 
hex signs are called hexenpus, which is hex, or I'm sorry, witch foot is what it translates to. Hex and hooves? Um, uh, <laughs> like H-O-O-V-E-S? No, 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 no. Um, in German, it's Hexenkopf, like K-O. Oh. I can't, I cannot speak German. I don't either. So this is very evident just now. <laughs> I'm a bad German ancestor. But yeah, so it, it, it translates to, to witch's foot, which is basically the mark of the witch. Even though, you know, they're signs of blessing and protection, they could be looked at as curses by the old order or the Catholics or anybody who wanted to say that they were evil, they certainly could be. Um, there's also a belief with, with this that if you can heal, you can also hex or curse. Yeah. So I'm here to say that is true. And <laughs> you can, I mean, it, people will argue that the difference between a powwow and a witch is intent. And I think that that's bogus. I think that they're the same and they're good people who are witches and there are good people who are powwows just as there are bad. Did that come about during the age of the defanging of like public witchcraft that I feel like we're, we're low key recovering from now a little bit right. of like, no, 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 no. Witchcraft isn't this. It's actually just super benign and normal. And it's right. really not. Uh, <laughs> it's weird. You always end up where we started somehow. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. How we're like currently in, the most open age of witchcraft in recent history while also simultaneously in another satanic panic is just like what's happening Mm -hmm. it's wild so yeah i don't know um i think a lot of it started with when the hex murder happened i really think that was the time that a lot of splits came into the thought of good and evil within the within the practice um but there was always hesitancy as there is with anything that people don't understand and always elements of secret within it. Well, let's come back to the the hex murder then, because I'm thinking about how very obvious these hex signs would be on your barn from a distance, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. So I'm assuming there was some transitional point after the murder. Interestingly, hex signs are still really common in this area. And maybe they came down for for a while. I should actually try to dig into that history and see. But oftentimes they were they were painted directly on the barn, so it would be a great deal of work to remove them. Oh yeah, cost too much money. <laughs> Honestly, put another hex sign over it to protect us from being known. Seriously, <laughs> and it's so it's so wild because this was the twenties, so you don't think about there being like witch hunts in the twenties, but that was very much was what it was. And there was actually a second one, um, I think, a, about a decade later. Um, with a, another witch who was killed, who was a, a powwow practitioner. You can't say the 20s anymore. We're in the 20s right now. Oh, <laughs> well, now I feel ancient. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, that's upsetting. Okay. For those listening 100 years in the future, um, we're talking, can you, can you clarify which 20s you're talking about? Yes, okay. So the 1920s. Um, I also can't do the thing where people say the century. Like, I never know which one they're talking about. Can never remember I don't even know what before. that means. Like, if people are like, oh, the 18th century. In my brain, I'm like, is that 1718 or 1900s? I can't do it. I don't even remember. I used to, used to have to do that for school, and now I don't know. Yeah, I think it's gone before, but I never feel confident. Well, we're, we're in the 21st century. So that would be the one after. No, before, because it's still 20. <laughs> 
Wait, I can't do math. Listen, ignore this. If anyone's listening, I maybe I'll edit this part out. <laughs> In which Mana and Mary Ellen attempt to look at numbers. <laughs> yeah, no, don't make me do it. I failed multiple math classes throughout my life, not because I knew how to do things incorrectly, but because I would copy down every single problem from my book to my paper incorrectly. Oh no. And then I would do the wrong problem all the time. <laughs> oh, no. So Did I you know have how to do the anxiety? Math. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, I mean, so I just listened to uh, some, like a radio show about um, math anxiety being like a legitimate thing that they're studying now because it's real and very prevalent. So. Yeah, it's really like cutthroat subject because you fuck up once and you're just fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, you'll I, never recover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you write down the problem wrong and then you just, you do that. Pro you'd make up a new problem. Maybe I was just being creative. I just, really? you know, took creative liberty and then did that one really well. And that would be all the time so the, to the point where my teachers would be, they would uh, grade, you get points based on how far I would get until I would write a number down incorrectly. Oh my god! In gosh. the next line. And they're like, well, this is where you fucked up. So now we're, you get two out of two out of three points on that one, though. So good job. Oh, my gosh. So you're doing the thing like with the centuries where they just have to try to figure out which answer goes to which question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then word problems. It was just like that meme where that guy's like cringe smiley face. Yeah. And then there's all the question marks around his head uh, <laughs> when I would read those. So uh, anyway, I know I've distracted again from <laughs> It's, I'm here for it. I can't do math. That's our conclusion. No math for anyone. Where was I? The the hex murders, and you, we were talking about oh, how yeah. they're still on the barns, even though it was a very prominent identification point. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know about how that how that changed things with the hex signs, but they're I mean they're very common now, even. You know, some of them are washed off the barn, and I don't know how long they've been there, but you can see the the relics of them. And there are still sign painters who get commissioned to go and paint protective signs on the barn. I think a lot of times they're chosen now for aesthetics. I don't think the general population in the farming community really believes in the, the superstitious or the magic parts of it, hmm. which is sad. I don't think most of them even know. I think they're just like, oh, this is like, I mean, just a relic. They don't, they don't know about the meaning. I wonder that now, because I'm seeing a, a, like a jewelry fashion trend with the, with the blue. I am totally I'm blanking. I do this a lot on the podcast. The evil eye? Yeah, it's the evil eye, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm absolutely blanking on what it's actually the actual word for it. I don't know why I'm forgetting right now, but... Um, yeah, I'm seeing that more like people are just wearing it as like jewelry and bracelets way more than they did like a year ago. And I'm yeah. like, I, and it's sold more in like, not, not just like new age shops just around. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. It's, I actually, as a jeweler was looking into that, not because I wanted to do it, but because I was seeing it everywhere. And I was like, do you guys know what you're <laughs> like? There's, there's just a lot to be known about that before you're just like five dollars come and get it mm -hmm. i feel like there's worse things to willy-nilly adorn yourself with but sure um sure. you know but it's i i get what i totally get what you're saying I don't, I don't know why i'm absolutely blanking on what this is called i can't remember either yeah too much pressure 
podcast. The math anxiety crept in and now we'll never remember anything. (laughs) Yeah, but I've been seeing that everywhere. And so that with the people having hex signs in their barns reminded me of that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's so much of that. I mean, like I said, my, you know, my sister and I grew up immersed in this culture in the middle of PA Dutch country and had no idea that it was anything other than the same thing that we experienced when we went to church on Sunday. And underneath it is this huge, rich, magical history. It's wild. All right. So the hex murder. Do you want the details? I do. All right. Trigger warning for anyone who doesn't like murder. Oh, yeah. Definitely that. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Um, No, I think we're good. I'll bring it up if there is anything that anyone needs to look out for. But this is the story of Nelson Raymeyer and the Hex murder. So Nelson Raymeyer was a known... I'm, I'm sorry for using the word powwow so much in this episode. It's just the one that is so common. So it's That's okay. We're using it in a historical context and you clarified at the beginning. The difference. Yeah. I don't love it, but I also am not trained to use something else yet. Mm-hmm. So he was a known powwow doctor close to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, but there's a specific town that I can't remember. Um, but he was sort of reclusive. He kept to himself. He was a socialist, which people didn't agree with at the time. And with that, he became sort of the subject of rumors and things like that. There was a young man who was also a powwow doctor. There's some question about his authenticity. Um, His last name was Her, but he was... 18 years old, he had a known IQ of 28, and he was having a real tough time. He ended up in the, what was the the mental hospital there, the psychiatric ward, um, for a time, and came out suffering with what the doctors called witch delusions. And he was convinced after a period of time that his family he himself specifically, but it sort of reached into his family, had a hex put on them. They had a string of bad luck with the farm. Their crops weren't doing well. Their animals were dying. There was sickness in the family. And all of this just fueled his, his belief that he had been hexed. So he saw several people trying to find out who had hexed him or what to do to lift the hex. And he eventually found a self-proclaimed witch um, in another town and went to see her and she told him what he needed to do was to get a lock of the person's hair and to destroy or take their book. And when he handed her payment for her services, the money was removed from his hand and on his palm appeared the face of Nelson Raymeyer. And he had known Nelson Raymeyer just from about town Um, no real relationship, but, you know, they were both powwows in in the area. They knew of each other. Um, So from that, he became convinced that Ray Meyer had put this hex on him. And so he and a buddy went over one night. They they had this plan to kind of subdue him and try to get his hair and try to get his book. And they show up and they find 
a man who's six feet tall, burly, and Raymeyer invites them in and they sit and they eat and they drink and talk about farming and it gets late and Nelson Raymeyer says, boys, why don't you spend the night here? They do, they wake up the next morning and they leave, realizing fully that they are too small to <laughs> subdue this man in any way. Um, so they're talking to their families. Um, they end up bringing in another guy. So now there's three of them and they decide they're gonna go back and with the three of them, try to bring him down. So they head out, it's 11.30 at night, they pound on the door, they look and see Raymeyer come to the window upstairs. He comes down, you say, I think they tell him they, they had forgotten something the night before, so he invites them in and you know they chat a bit and then they all kind of jump on him at the same time. And trigger warning violence, they bash him on the head with, um, I don't know if it was a rod or something, but it ends up cracking his skull. They all pounce on him. They tie him up. They knock him down on the floor and they end up killing him, which wasn't the intention. Um, they had the book, but they decided they didn't need it anymore because they had killed him. So now they're like, oh, oops. <laughs> now we have a body on our hands. What do we do? So they douse it in fuel and strike a match and light the house on fire and leave. Um, they walk out and it's, they say that when they turned around, they saw Ray Meyer moving in the flames, which has its own lore as well as just maybe he was only passed out and it was the fire that ultimately killed him. There's also, of course, the story that, you know, that was the devil or something and his spirit they saw in the fire. Uh, so, you know, they all go home and Nelson Raymeyer had a wife and they did not live together because he was a recluse and probably generally not great to live with. Um, so she and her children had a separate home, but she would still do his laundry and they were still kind of friends. When she got wind of him being killed, uh, his neighbors had found him a few days later uh, she had known that these boys had been there. So she reported um, their names to the police and they confessed. They said, yeah, this man hexed us. And so we killed him. Uh, they found out that the only thing that had burned was his body. And the house had been totally protected, which just adds more Whoa. amazing lore to the story. But they you saw know. it go up in flames? They saw the fire start over his body. Oh. Um, so they kind of like threw the match right on him, that like the area where he was laying. And it burned a hole in the floor and burned the body, but did not spread, which is amazing. And has been spin spun, you know, both as it was God protecting the house or it was the devil protecting the house. It was his, his witchcraft that that saved the house. It ended up going to trial for, they tried to do theft. So the boys had stolen some money that was stashed in the house. And so when they were prosecuting, they, they didn't want it to be a witch trial because it's the 1920s, who wants a witch trial? Uh, so they were under like strict rules not to bring up the witchcraft thing. So they were, they were trying the boys as, as like murder robbery. It 
ended up slipping on the side of the defense, the word witch. And once that was put into the record, it just blew up into a full-blown witchcraft case. Um, and, you know, the papers went wild and it became this huge stain on the Pennsylvania Dutch reputation. It became a full-blown witchcraft case when the person who was killed... I'm, I'm practicing my reading comprehension right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. So... <laughs> so... Ray Meyer was a practitioner. Yes. Okay. And so were the people who visited him? Who One of they, them. One of them. Okay. Yes. And then obviously that, yeah. Um, that's what I thought. I'm just confirming. How did it become a witchcraft case if it was essentially witch against witch for colloquial terms? Yeah. Um, okay. So it's complicated because there was an insanity plea kind of on either side for the guy who sort of spearheaded the murder. So his belief in witches was looked at initially as benefiting the defense for, for Ray Meyer's family. But then once the witch claims came out, I don't know if it just wasn't that public for the one guy or if it was that he, that it was just spun in such a way that it gained all of this attention even if it was witch versus witch the the issue was everybody outside of the community was suddenly witnessing the fact that all of these people were practicing witchcraft and believing in witchcraft so it may not even matter mm. at the end of the day what was being claimed because there was also this this like insanity portion on behalf of the the person who had committed the crime so his practices almost were, I mean, at that time, you know, mental health wasn't being understood in any, any capacity. And so it was just like, oh, well, he's insane. So he doesn't matter in terms of what he believes or doesn't believe or what he does. The, the real problem was that in this, in this town, they're literally trying someone in a witchcraft case. And it just like shifted everything. <laughs> but that, I mean, that happened again 10 years later with another um, powwow. This was a woman. I don't know all the details of that one, but, you know, that was the 1930s. And this, this faith healer was suddenly accused of, of witchcraft and was, was killed. It's wild. Is it documented that Raymeyer had any hex marks on his house? He, I don't believe that he had any hex signs. What he did have was The Long Lost Friend. That was mm -hmm. the book. Um, as well as being just a known powwow practitioner. Okay. His house actually is still standing. It's still in the family. Um, there's a lot of uh, ghost stories and things like that in that in that region. It's actually called Hex Hollow now. That whole um, area? The town. Yeah, it's like a, it's almost like a if you're familiar with, with Appalachia, the I'm an Appalachia person because I'm Northern, sorry, Appalachia people. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's like a, a region that's, it's, I mean, it's tiny. It's just like this little kind of valley, but like a hollow um, called Hex Hollow. And or someone where... call Hex Holler, probably. Yeah, yeah, not there, but they would in Kentucky <laughs> for sure. So this then affected Everything. people's, yeah, okay. Yeah. 
how fast just like overnight or oh yeah yeah almost immediately it was um there's actually a really wonderful interview I'm gonna shout out another podcast quick as I do but the um Strange Familiars podcast has had this wonderful interview with um it's Allison's mom actually interviewed a powwow practitioner back in the 70s and it's I think over an hour long of just him talking about all kinds of stuff. And she, they bring up the murder and you can just hear his frustration with it. And he actually doubted that, that the, the guy who had committed the crime was a powwow in the first place because a powwow would never do such a thing. Mm. How do you feel about that? I mean, that case itself is just sad in so many ways. And I think more than anything, I believe that almost anyone has the ability to do magic <laughs> personally. So I don't know if, if my, my thoughts are really like relevant on this case, because I, I just think that like if, if this person was practicing powwow, I think they were practicing powwow and that makes them a powwow of sorts. I don't think it makes them a good one, but that comes back to that argument of the difference between a witch and a powwow. And to me, I just think that there's good and bad on both sides. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. When we look back at how things changed going forward for Mm -hmm. this community overall, is this, I know it's saying Pennsylvania Dutch magic. Can you clarify a little bit of the geography? Cause I know you mentioned some people moved down to the Ozarks and I'm sure this is all generally part of Appalachia anyway. Um, is it's just Pennsylvania? Is it did it originally is it just Pennsylvania at first? No. Well, so initially it was it was Pennsylvania and there was an area in New York where a lot of people settled, okay. but primarily it was Pennsylvania because of William Penn's settlement mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and because religious freedom was like the thing at the time. Because I know some people will talk about this is the reason why I'm asking. We'll talk about just Appalachian folk magic in general. And this, that seems to be more of an umbrella term. Yeah, I think the more southern regions of Appalachia are what I think of when I hear Appalachian folk magic. Because I grew up in the foothills of the Blue Mountains, which is like the northern part of Appalachia. And there's really not... A ton of folk magic there other than this PA Dutch stuff and the Appalachian stuff is less rooted in farming I think that was an accidental pun was it so less rooted in farming oh hey I did normally I'm a deliberate pun person so I'm kind of (laughs) proud of that one for some reason I feel like the actual landscape dictates the differentiation there um, where okay. the PA Dutch was more like if you go to central Pennsylvania it's a lot more open and there's a lot more field with a lot of kind of larger valleys whereas I feel like the southern parts of that Belita are more narrow like there's the mountains are closer together mm-hmm. yeah that's where you get all even more haulers right there. correct yes yeah that's that's something that's always interested me because again like I well I do have some pieces of family that have you know lived around i i just am, i'm such a west coast person um yeah. that that i am trying to build a better understanding of of this area regionally especially since i live on the east coast now yeah welcome 
<laughs> Thank you. <laughs> or as the Pennsylvania Dutch would say, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so as you've researched this, and you, it, you, it sounds like you've you really know a lot. Um, and I mean, I'll talk to some people and they'll have a vested interest in things and maybe they'll just have a harder time speaking about it. But you, you seem to have, like, it's really stuck in your head. Yeah. You've read. I mean, part of that, I told you, I fully have ADHD diagnosis. So my hyperfixation came on strong with this. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm not mad about it. So how has that affected your personal way of life since you learned all this and only share as much as you're comfortable on that? Yeah, um, it has helped to give a uh, um, otherwise pretty chaotic magical practice some shape and some form, maybe less in a kind of structural framework and more of a an example that feels like home, I think is, is really a big part of it where I was kind of floundering through spirituality and religion and all of that my whole life. And in this kind of chaotic mysterious world of the PA Dutch where it is and it isn't nearly everything that you try to claim it to be and yet it exists and is purported to work has been I mean just like foundationally inspiring in my own magical practice and in my own reconciling between my like earlier kind of super Christian younger years and my more like atheistic or just fully woo later <laughs> later and current self um I've been able to kind of put it all into a bag and shake it up and say it's okay to exist in this unknown and that doesn't mean that things don't get to work and it doesn't mean that you don't still believe even if it doesn't fit into a box Sounds like it gives you a tether for what you explore. It really does. I mean, a lot of it is pulling in what works for me and, and leaving what doesn't. That that sounds kind of frivolous. It's I make my own rules in terms mm -hmm. of my own spirituality. And this has really opened a lot of space for that and, and yeah, given it given it a tether. That's a good way to put it. How has it influenced your silversmithing? Uh, Leaving that in. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I forget that that is like my primary identity in the modern era as a silversmith because I'm so just like dug into this PA Dutch stuff. But part of it, when I'm at the bench, I am in a place in between. It's it's almost like that spot between awake and asleep, where your brain is just kind of elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and through that is where I have really opened myself up to more spirituality. So I'm listening to these like uh, different stories of crazy things, you know, listening to supernatural stuff or paranormal stuff or, you know, hearing about all these other magical practices and all of that is kind of seeping and digging into Pennsylvania Dutch stuff. I just started to, to incorporate more and more of that. And as I've learned more, I now have almost a lens to hear these other stories through. And I have a hard time talking about how it really influences the work itself in terms of what I'm creating, but the intention and the, I do, I involve spiritual practice in the work that I'm doing. So I always like, I'm making offerings, I'm working with different things. I'm doing actually 
inspired by an earlier episode of your podcast, I started doing my own version of alchemical quenching. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that, which full credit to Troll Cunning Forge, who does way cooler ones than I do. I do the folk magic version of what he does. Um, He does a cool one where he quenches iron and foxglove to help offend the fae less. Yeah, it's his work is incredible. I am, I'm very much a Pennsylvania Dutch chaos folk magician. So <laughs> I'm like, I mean, I'll do stuff with the definite intention and um, pull in things like that. But a lot of mine is just herbs and he's using like waters from the river where Cleopatra bathed. And I'm like, I don't know, none of that for me. With that, there's, I mean, there's this huge list of what, what herbs were used for in the Pennsylvania Dutch history and what they would grow and why and so I've started growing those and then drying them and using them in my quenches I've started calling in my ancestors uh, for creative inspiration and bringing just more and more of that into it I still struggle with the Christian parts like I can't do it yet maybe never but (laughs) I've I've opened myself up to where I don't cringe when I hear uh, people talking about Jesus and I'll pat myself on the shoulder for that because <laughs> there was a time when I couldn't do that. And mm-hmm. so while I'm not calling in Jesus or anything like that, I am definitely connecting to the cultural heritage of that faith and, and what my ancestors would have believed that it stood for. I don't know how to talk about how that really impacts the silversmithing actually. But you just did, though. Yeah, okay, just trust me that it does. <laughs> yeah, well, if you listening have not seen Mary Ellen's work, I highly recommend you go check it out because it is amazing. And honestly, I'm astounded by all the things that the community can do. And it's, I mean, I, I took like one silversmithing class and it was very hard. Uh, <laughs> I've done that one time in my life. So I'm always astounded by people who can craft in this way with metals and even woods and things like that. So definitely check it out. I had no idea that I could do anything like that until I just like was doing it. I was like, oh, hey, this is cool. (laughs) Because it's, yeah, like people are so talented. And all of a sudden I was like, I actually have one. I can do something. Well, where can people find you and your work and everything else like that? Yeah, so I'm... Um, wayward underscore silver on Instagram that's kind of the hub waywardsilver.com I will probably eventually if you're listening to this in the future change my handle to wayward hexcraft but it's very hard to change your handle once you have attached yourself to one for a while you could do that thing where you you change your handle and then make another account and then grab your other name and then just put in the bio hey you can find me over here now i'm over here now yeah i gotta reprint like a gajillion business cards though (laughs) 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 that's the the kicker it's like it's on everything i actually i have moved uh, like so many times and so for a long time i had business cards that said i was living in los angeles when i was living in pennsylvania and (laughs) it's like I can't. I just stopped identifying as anything because I am always changing. But yeah, Wayward Silver on Instagram, Wayward underscore Silver is is really the place to find me. And I dabble in all kinds of stuff. I have a Patreon. I'm kind of bad at it. So maybe don't join it unless you're just into donating money to people. 
How are you bad at Patreon? I see you do um, monthly boxes and things like that. You're right. I have ones that have tangible things that I have to do, but in terms of um, actually taking the time to, to write posts and stuff, I feel like I'm constantly um, behind. I'll just send them the link to this podcast episode and say, congratulations, patrons. You get to hear me talk about BA Dutch stuff with man. <laughs> <laughs> but my goal is to do more. I have big plans for the future with um, actually incorporating like hexine jewelry and stuff like that, but it's everything's a matter of time. So we'll see. Wonderful. I'll have all of those links listed in the description box below, and I'm sure you'll have links in your own bio and everything, oh, yes. links to your website and such as well. I do. And if anyone listening is wanting to get in touch with their PA Dutch roots, other than the long lost friend, where else would you point them? Um, I would point anyone who's magically minded towards Silver Ravenwolf and encourage you to read with discretion. Like I said, she has a lot of really cool things to say, but they're not always the most spot on. I have two other books, which I'm happy to send you in the link in the bio, but or not the link in the bio, the notes, the show notes. Mm -hmm. um, one of them is Hex and Spellwork by Carl Herr. And the other one is just called um, Powwowing Among the Pennsylvania Dutch by David Crable. And I'll send those to Mana so you have the, the spelling and everything there. Yeah, yeah, I'll put all those in the description box below. And reach out to me. Honestly, I need people who are willing to talk about this stuff. So if you have any stories, any German folk magic stuff, like, if you can't tell, I love talking about this. So if anyone out there wants to talk about it, I would love to hear anything you have to say and share what I know. And like I said, everything will be listed in the description box below. And is there anything else that you would like to, to add today? Um, I'm just looking at my notes and realizing how much more there could be to say, but I think I'm just going to put a pin in it. So. Okay. <laughs> we can always do a part two. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's just so much, but we'll talk about that. Where if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know who I am, you can find me at mothmana.com for information on readings and a gallery of my digital art. And yeah, that, that about wraps it up for today. Thank you again for being here, Mary Ellen. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and letting me go off. <laughs> <laughs>